Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think we're embarrassed to admit that we want certain things. So critiquing feels safer somehow. It's more cognitive to critique and complain and look at what's wrong then the vulnerability of admitting that you want something that you might not get or admitting that you want something that is just outrageous and terrible. Sometimes we have to face desires that are appalling, really. We don't have to act on them, but it's just confronting something internally. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive, and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness, and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. In today's interview, I am speaking to the wonderful psychotherapist, Charlotte Fox Weber. She is the author of What We Want. It's a book that takes you on a journey through 12 universal wants and desires from love, power, sex, attention, and more, bringing us behind the closed doors of the psyche, an area we don't explore enough. I cried within 20 minutes of reading. The stories Charlotte shares are so relatable, universal, and above all else, human. This book truly is a work of art. And through these stories, you learn so much about yourself. As a reader, you can identify with wanting and desiring such normal things most of us don't admit, and the blocks we often face to truly get what we want. I'm delighted to have Charlotte, a true expert, in the mind on today's show. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? I change my mind a lot, but I think at the moment it's probably tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And why do you choose that one? Because I think that accepting loss and facing limitations and that vulnerability and pain and even the tragedy of Love and attachment is incredibly helpful and kind of liberating and leaning into desire as gut-wrenching as it is. And that's, I think, in the first few chapters, and I want to come into this in more detail later on in the interview, but you open the book with such a beautiful exploration of love and loss and how actually quickly attachments can form and how sometimes you can know someone for such a short amount of time, but that impact can last a lifetime. And yet there's other relationships that, you know, can be with you for your whole life. They're not impact you in the same way. Completely. I think closeness is really odd and can plays tricks on us. And we feel that instant connection. I mean, I even feel it with you and it's just some sense that happens with certain people. And there are other people where you realize that you're strangers after 30 years. 
And there's no rhyme or reason. And I guess what an amazing part of being, you know, a psychotherapist like you are is to, I guess, recognize how this seems the common theme in everyone's life. I think that for various reasons, we we pretend around certain people and it's a dynamic that emerges and it can be remedied if there's a kind of acknowledgement that you're, you're kind of faking it. But there's something about that pretending that just makes the encounter really fraudulent and kind of flat when you're following a script in some way, when you're not speaking genuinely. But I guess that takes a vulnerability in all of us to be able to kind of speak our truth without fear of judgment. Completely. And and also allowing for uncertainty and surprise and kind of letting yourself meander conversationally. But when we get too careful, it, it just gets tilted. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? That some situations are hopeless. And I actually think it's really consoling to accept that and to call time on situations that are not going to improve. And giving up on fantasies that are impossible is just such a release. And I think we're weirdly overcommitted to impossible quests, or I am anyway. I found myself overly determined to kind of see things through when actually they're hopeless. And I think marking what's hopeless just allows for new possibilities. So I'm I'm in favor of giving up hope where nothing is going to get better. I find that so freeing to allow things to be hopeless. And as you say, remove our expectations of something changing. It is what it is. There feels such great acceptance with just being able to acknowledge something's hopeless. Yeah. And allowing yourself to give up on something. Yeah. I, I mean, this is something I really wanted to discuss with you. And in, 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 when I was reading your book, this hearing these stories of, of regret. And again, I think regret is an emotion we really barely discuss. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think it, we're very proud and very defensive. And it, it's so uncomfortable for us to admit regret because there's nothing we can do about it. And mm. it's such a reminder of our impotence in some way and our flaws. And we're very proud and just kind of stringent and strict thinking that we're not allowed to have regrets. And at the same time, like it's just the truth for certain situations. And when you can accept that you have a regret, you can then turn the page. But I think it feels disastrous. We've kind of exaggerated how awful it is. Right. And you kind of have those bumper stickers, have no regrets. And right. and I think that's like the beauty of your book. You really normalize these emotions that don't get much airtime. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I think we like the idea that we could somehow get life right and <laughs> go about it in a way where we would have no regrets. Like who... Who could ever be without regret if you're living properly and making mistakes and having experiences? Right. Oh, that, that's hilarious. The myth of thinking that we could do life right. That's brilliant. And how do you define the soul? As something that we are very aware of, but don't fully understand. So there's something kind of ineffable and mysterious and beyond definition. And how often do you kind of even come into contact with soul, would you say, in the therapy room? Like how much of that do you feel is tangible or not so much? I think 
it's a word that can kind of evoke strong feelings in people. Like people get nervous about somehow saying the wrong thing in response, saying spiritual. That's another word that can activate something if it makes us feel uncomfortable and unconfident. I think that the soul is just that specific private personal thing that is a little bit magical and it can be embarrassing for people to point it out, to kind of say something about it. Like it's so out of control in some way. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder why there is so much fear and reluctance to be able to even investigate such a thing. Yeah, I think we get very concrete and very caught up with evidence and can, what we can see and control and be in charge of. And the soul is a little bit lofty and beyond us. And you know, the reason I ask is because I guess emotions and our mind is almost in the same camp in many ways. Like often it doesn't make sense. We can't see it. But yet you day in, day out are seeing these unseen transformations within people. I think we get really freaked out and daunted by emotions and by desires. Like Mm -hmm. as though we need to have a full comprehensive explanation and we're not great at kind of sitting with the mysterious aspect of desire and feeling. And we don't need to explain ourselves at all moments. Like sometimes we can just acknowledge that there's something going on. And I I mean, I'm in favor of understanding, but when it comes to knowing definitively like who we are, I don't think there's a there there in a way. I remember one line in your book that says something along the lines of, the notes we play are important, but maybe the notes that are unplayed are the most important. And that I felt reflects what you just said, this idea of when we don't have to explain or we can just acknowledge what happens in those moments can really mm-hmm. have quite transformative impact. And this leads me on to ask you why you focused your book on exploring the 12 deepest desires that are universal in all humans. Because you know, you've been a psychotherapist for many years. You could have written a book about so many different elements and sides to the human psyche. Why was it human desire that you wanted to explore in this particular book? So I've always been very restless and that was problematic growing up. And it's not a trait that's usually associated positively with psychotherapists. We're supposed to be endlessly patient and (laughs) hold space and not be in any rush. And I found myself feeling kind of agitated in my own experience of therapy, but also with clients, like, let's get a move on. Where is this (laughs) going? And there was something about the slowness and the stuckness of therapy that, that bothered me. And the motion of desire, the kind of possibility and fresh experience that it allows is so dazzling and fascinating to me. I, I just found it too interesting to ignore. But I also think it's really strange that psychotherapists don't spend more time looking at desire. I mean, I think it's beginning to change, but we're better at looking at problems and misery and obstacles and sorrow in a way than looking at what it's for and what we might actually long for. And so how did you feel the experience changed when you then changed your focus on exploring desire rather than let's just have another hour on talking about what's going wrong in your life? Uh, It was incredible. I mean, I think there's something about 
the possibility of even looking at desire that is inviting to people and encouraging. And even if it's terrifying, I mean, we're, we're so conflicted about desire in general, but mm. people want permission and encouragement. So one of the reasons I, I became so preoccupied with the whole thing was that people kept revealing secret desires to me. And it, I knew that therapy would be a space for secrets, but I thought it would be secrets like affairs and money problems and kind of known issues. And instead it was these secret sides that people have where they want to be able to explore something. They just need, they need encouragement. To your point about how desire is very conflicted, you know, I think often, you know, we are more and more people are questioning the shackles of organized religion and perhaps the way that organized religion made desire feel wrong or dirty. Mm. What desires have you found to have most shame attached to them? So I was really shocked that I have buried and kind of hidden so many desires for myself because I thought of myself as being an open, liberal, self-aware person. I'm the worst. I mean, I, I'm even trickier than someone who's just kind of honestly full of shame and religious issues and like hangups in those ways. Cause I thought, I thought I was really straightforward with myself, but actually I didn't admit that I felt strong desires for terribly inappropriate people. Like I've always been tempted by monstrous characters, but I, I didn't face any of that. I can thought I was more absolute that I was one thing or another. And actually I'm really ambivalent about people. How did exploring your desire create harmony in understanding that? I I got stuck for years, just kind of obsessing over the wrongdoing of certain people where I, I understood. Can you give us an example? Sure. I, I had a, a very strange traumatic entanglement with someone when I was in my early 20s. And I extricated myself from the relationship and made all of the right choices technically and did the right thing. This person then died a couple of years ago. And I, I was completely overwhelmed by these unacknowledged desires that I'd never faced. Like I had really loved this terrible person and it was so confusing and so kind of incongruent with my sense of self and my sense of, values and it, it disturbed me but at the same time there was something about the kind of unfinished business where I just had to explore those longings and I had to come to terms with them and it was such a relief it was it was all survivable that's such a beautiful word survivable I feel that so much our of our behavior stems from this internal belief that maybe things aren't survivable so oh completely I mean, I had not faced a lot of the issues because I, I just thought it would be the end of me in some way. It's really interesting, this relationship between desires and our values. How do we know that the desires that are potentially ruling our life are actually aligned with these values? And do you find that we are quite confused on what our values are? Because talking from a personal standpoint, you know, I can kind of virtue signal my values, but maybe my behavior yeah. would suggest something different. I think that we scold ourselves internally. And that's the part that really messes with us because we actually kind of terrorize ourselves. Like we, we corner ourselves by not admitting to these secret longings that we haven't told anyone about. 
So it, it's as if we're kind of playing out some drama internally and not admitting it and then trying to get past things. And that sounds contradictory, but I think we get stuck with trying to get over things we've never acknowledged. So once we accept that we're all conflicted, that conflict is actually really interesting. And I mean, if you think of conflict, conflict is essential for the plot of any story. And knowing that we're conflicted is okay. We can we can embrace it. It's not that we have to resolve it. But I think we don't do well with that conflict internally. We think that we have to kind of put ourselves in a box and match the image we have of ourselves. So a lot of our desires are at odds with what it means to be a good person and mm. what we think we should be doing. It's all the shoulds. And obviously you look into the minds of so many people. If somebody had your seat, what do you think would surprise them the most if they knew more about other people's minds? That we're all obscene and shocking and contradictory <laughs> and also inconsistent. I mean, I think I've been really overjoyed to realize that consistency is not always necessary. And I mean, that's where your flexible thinking and mindset just opens up so much because we're allowed to change our minds and we're allowed to sometimes even be hypocritical and we can go back and change how we felt. I mean, the meaning can change over time from a story from 20 years ago, like it's fluid, but I think we get very rigid in our sense of story, like our sense of who we are and what we must be doing. So I think that people would be very interested to discover that outrageous seeming people can actually be very conservative and ordinary. And then ordinary seeming people can sometimes be utterly scandalous in their fantasy lives. So we're all kind of rich and weird. And I don't think we should shut any of it down. I think we're missing out on this richness if we can just go about with the rules. I love how the undertone of your book, I think, is a message that normal doesn't exist for that exact reason. And you talk about masks, um, this idea that, you know, someone on the surface can be super confident and then on the inside is actually like deeply insecure. How do you think mm. we create more harmony? What would be your advice to someone who is in conflict, who does feel like sometimes they're two different people and they aren't ready to accept one part that feels wrong compared to the other? I think that it's really helpful to acknowledge secrets that you don't necessarily have to reveal to the world. So there's mm -hmm. a difference between something you're ashamed of and something that's actually just private. And Sometimes knowing that you're really conflicted and you're you're kind of putting on a show goes a long way. Like you can be in cahoots with yourself. You can accept that you're tricky and ambivalent and have multitudes and haven't made up your mind, but you don't have to necessarily convey all of that to the world. I think there's a lot of pressure to kind of again justify ourselves and mm. somehow spell it out when I think we're already kind of defensive and working too hard if we're doing that. Why do you think it's easier to say what we don't want than what we do? I think we get really attached to obstacles and we're, we're embarrassed to admit that we want certain things. So 
critiquing feels safer somehow. It, it's more cognitive to critique and complain and look at what's wrong than the vulnerability of admitting that you want something that you might not get mm. or admitting that you want something that is just outrageous and terrible and should never be pursued. Like sometimes we have to face desires that are appalling, really. We don't have to act on them, but it's just confronting something internally. But I think that we, again, get very attached to some idea of consistency, that we have to kind of stick it out and have a position and we're not allowed to waver. I really want to touch upon that point a bit further, this idea of desires and then fantasy and realistic desires and fantasy, because fantasy thinking, I think, can be deeply dangerous to the human psyche because it is filled with deep disappointment when we finally have a reality check of some description. What are your thoughts between what's fantasy and what's desire? I think fantasy is, if we think that fantasy is actually going to happen and we don't realize that it's fantasy and that some of it is kind of daydreaming, then I think mm. we trick ourselves and we actually believe our own stories and that's where we get into trouble. Just knowing that it's your mind wandering and you've come up with stories and they're wonderful stories, but it's a story. I think mm. what's really disturbing to us is that we somehow expect our lives to match whatever it is we picture. And we have these kind of rule books in our minds of like how life is supposed to be. And and then we're we're horrified when nothing matches. In many ways, I feel like that is gripping this millennial Gen Z generation, because we were like the first generation to have social media that put all our fantasies on steroids. Completely. I mean, I'm I'm in favor of trying to live a fulfilling life, but I actually think that it's not possible to have total fulfillment. And mm. we expect to kind of arrive at meaning and arrive at a full and complete life. And we're always going to be dissatisfied in some way like life will fall short and actually mm. will fall short in some way like back to the regret thing I think not everything is possible and we somehow think that we can master everything and that we're supposed to have wisdom and can live this glorious existence and it's just so much pressure and then how do you then respond if someone said well that's negative <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm in favor of dark and twisted because I think it actually makes us feel better. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. To face whatever is there, I think the pressure to be positive is 
unbearable and not necessarily helpful. So I, I would just be raven-like about it and say, that's my position, but people are phobic about negativity. Right. And what this conversation reminds me of is just how inconsistent we are. We're so extreme in many ways. We kind of encourage and our culture especially does encourage everyone to kind of dream up these you know enormous realities which is great and mm. we now use words like manifest whatever you want on the other hand um in your book you share this quote by bernard shaw which i thought was great and you say um people become attached to their burdens more than their burdens are attached to them so on the one hand we have this kind of escapism into fantasy and on the other hand we're like deeply attached to all the things that are going wrong and our burdens yeah. and the things that yeah. we can complain about? How can we understand this better? Again, we're very strict with our stories. Like we think that we have to commit to something and we get so stubborn and we don't necessarily admit that we're conflicted and contradictory and don't have any of it figured out. So we've been given so many mixed messages about how we're supposed to live our lives Mm. and what desire means and what the plot and purpose should be. Mm. And we're actually really uncomfortable with having fresh experience and enjoying ourselves. And I think disappointment and frustration can feel safer, but it's stifling. It's not necessarily a great kind of safety. It's thinking that we can kind of stay in a small zone and have control in some way to just look at what's wrong and to be attached to struggle. And I also think that we overdo the struggle thing. Like we think that there's some kind of victory in suffering and suffering is not necessarily useful, but it's really embarrassing to admit that. And I think some of that is our ego that gets disavowed. Like if we've been suffering for some terrible breakup, it's so kind of devastating to our ego to think actually it's not useful and we are wasting our time. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. And it does take a lot of thought gymnastics to be able to get ourselves out of these very, to your point, rigid storylines that feel very appropriate for the environments that we find ourselves in. I would love to talk about how the sense of self affects our desire. I was thinking how much, especially women in general, their desire has had to be curtailed for you know hundreds mm-hmm. of years. What is the relationship between all of that? I think that we are still really new to the whole idea that we're allowed to have desires. Mm. I mean, women have always had desires, but we're supposed to be sacrificial. We're supposed to serve others and and be the object of desire and be desirable. And we confuse ourselves endlessly in that way, like thinking, even if we don't think of ourselves as being people pleasers, we are so socialized to kind of be aware of how we're viewed, that we can act bitchy and terrible, but we still don't want to kind of admit what it is we secretly long for because we just think it'll make us somehow disgusting or imposing and grotesque. Like it's still uncomfortable to have too many thoughts about yourself. And I think that's part of why we get so caught up with our suffering because then we're still serving someone else if we're kind of victims of some terrible behavior that isn't our own. We can get away from ourselves. But I think that we also meet our own kind of secret ego needs by serving others. So there's a shadowy side to the whole virtuous sacrificial thing. 
And I definitely um, relate to that. I mean, I love feeling needed. Being needed equals a sense of belonging. So And power and mm, impact and recognition. And it's a way of feeling visible. And we don't like feeling invisible. And I guess no one does, right? I guess this must be, you write in the book about 12 desires. What do you think is the most powerful desire in influencing behavior? I think we get pushed and pulled in different directions depending on whatever is going on for us. But I think power is particularly confusing and troubling because it's not totally pretty. I'd say, especially for women, I I try not to make too many gender generalizations. I think it's complicated for men wanting power, feeling powerless at moments. But I think women feel uncouth in some way to admit that they want power. And even the word empower is kind of somehow safer than power. I don't know how you feel Mm. about the word power. Yeah, it's true. It feels ugly. And I think if people did a word association around power, they would say war and violence. And I guess power equals this feeling of safety in many ways. But the way we get it can can be quite harmful to others. And it's also an illusion. And it's not kind of, you know, you, you don't get it, then you have it forever, right? It's a feeling that, you know, for some people, I'd imagine is just never fully satisfied. Yeah. And again, I think the biggest myth is that we could ever have total fulfillment of any desire, really. If we accept that enoughness is a nice ideal, but it's not actually a destination that we get to. I mean, we have satisfaction for brief periods of time, but when is a desire completely fulfilled in some absolute way? What we want changes, and if we have what we want, then we stop wanting it and we change our minds. And we're so kind of disturbed when we realize that we want freedom, for instance, and we didn't five years ago. Like we might have wanted commitment and safety and security and not thought about freedom. And now all of a sudden, freedom really matters and feels urgent. So if we accept that we never have total fulfillment anyway, then we can kind of pursue different things at different moments and and have small dosages. That's interesting. How do you navigate then optimizing your life for current desires and then desires that you expect will become more important in the future? I think allowing for revision and updating and flexibility roles and responsibilities change over time and what you signed up for whatever it is at work in a friendship in a relationship you're allowed to recast yourself and Mm. allowing that space and wiggle room just seems so necessary but somehow we don't do it like we think again that we have to be consistent so constantly prioritizing and then reprioritizing and kind of reviewing often. In terms of relationships, and you wrote a brilliant article in the Times, and I remember one of the, I think it was number eight, number nine, the points, uh, Charlotte shared 10 points to improve relationship that you're in. And one of them was update the identity of your partner, because sometimes you can kind of get stuck with the, the idea of who that person was when you first met them. What are the qualities that you advise people to look for in someone in a quality that would actually help two people feel they can be nimble and flexible for a longer period of time? 
I think openness and a willingness to kind of acknowledge tricky sides, like righteousness. I mean, we can all be righteous, but if we think that we have it all figured out, that's problematic. So allowing for the confusion and also a bit of mess. Mm. So we get really solipsistic in our attitudes. Like if we think we must stick to the one path, the one singular route, and we start kind of masturbating. I talk about masturbating, but I didn't come up with a word, but I think it's a really helpful word for thinking about that kind of instructive reality testing. Like we start going around telling people how they should be in our minds. Mm -hmm. So even if we don't say it out loud in friendship, it's like, you should be behaving this way. We start instructing everyone. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. (laughs) And it doesn't work. And then we can hold grudges and like we get weighed down by these aggrieved feelings that we haven't dealt with. And somehow people aren't cooperating with whatever we're masturbating about. But I think when we can see that actually life does not match whatever it is we expect. Allowing for that surprise and curiosity, that's helpful. I guess we're never really taught this kind of acceptance for who someone else is and their totality and their warts and all. And I guess we have this illusion that we can change someone or make someone else better. Yes. Why do you think we become stuck in those ideas that we can change someone else? I think, again, a lot of it is the kind of unacknowledged ego. Mm. We don't necessarily think about what we want and what we think we're capable of. And we we sometimes overgive and overly sacrifice or overly deny that we have needs or wants. Like I, we get into work situations where we we spend too much. And then there's this kind of generosity remorse. Like I, we're suddenly seething with resentment and there's a kind of resentment buildup that happens. And it's as if we have some secret fantasy that, that other people are going to recognize all of the things that we have done and haven't admitted we're kind of struggling for it. Like we think that there's going to be some justice at the end. And I think if we were upfront from the start and talked about our desires and curiosities, it would be a little bit more straightforward, but instead it's like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And then suddenly it's not fine. There's a woman in your book and you write about her story and she talks to you a lot about the validation she's craving in her career. Mm. And through the therapy process, she also realizes that the validation she craves in her career is also compromising her time as a mom. This striving for validation, again, is a desire that feels quite ugly and it feels kind Mm. of shameful that we would want recognition when something like looking after a baby feels so much more important. And we know that's more important, like long term. How do you advise people to navigate these mixed desires when one feels obviously more important, but yet we can't help shake off a greater desire for self? I think that there's still so much pressure to kind of be virtuous mothers and Mm. deny that we might have our own wants and we're supposed to kind of just find fulfillment by giving. And most of us have some kind of secret life where it's not just about 
giving to children. And I think when we can be real about that, I, we can figure out what we want to prioritize. It doesn't mean we have to run off and join a circus and abandon our families, but permitting some of what feels unsightly and not necessarily nice just allows for options in your own mind. Like if you can trust yourself to have different values and priorities, it's so narrow that we're supposed to be so good. Yes, like absolutely. And again, not to be too gendered, that definitely I feel kind of like the onus does feel a kind of land, especially on women in that example. So I feel that your book offers so much freedom for readers by exploring all these different desires. But what would be your advice on a practical standpoint for people just to start exploring it for themselves, to really start asking those honest questions about what they truly desire and also what desires are really not being met and actually having a quite a big impact from not being met. And I guess to kind of attach to that question, what are some of the signs when you meet people that suggest that they are being unfulfilled, their desires are not being met? Frustration is a very big sign. Like when we get just so consumed by granular setbacks and sandy conflicts, And when we stay with the kind of roadblocks, but can't see past it in some way, we permit ourselves to dwell in the disappointment, but not get to the other side. I think we then exaggerate what the other side would even look like. Like We come up with these fluorescent stories of total freedom or total power and running away. And we make it so extreme when actually something is always possible and That might mean going for a walk or looking up at the sky or smelling rosemary. I'm not saying that those things fix big problems, but having fresh experience is incredibly helpful. But I think it often begins with curiosity and we actually overcomplicate the issue by thinking like, how do I find out what I really want? Do I really want Mm. that or not? Just actually start by asking yourself what matters to you and what kind of makes you come alive and what you're afraid of. And I, I mean, fear and desire are very closely linked. So if you really feel just uneasy about permitting desire internally, then you're probably better acquainted with fear. And that'll give you some indication. Absolutely fascinating. But I think your point of constantly updating our answer is such a useful thing to for us to be reminded about because to your point we're probably not the same person as we were a year ago let alone five yeah but we get blinded by the kind of absolutism like where we just we pursue one thing and and then we get overwhelmed how does anxiety and desire link together i think we're frightened of being foolish and being kind of found out for are disgraceful ways. Like we're so embarrassed by getting things wrong and seeming childlike. So I think that panic can make us overly paralyzed and cautious where we stop taking risks and we get very kind of conservative in our approach. Like when we're really anxious, we start, I mean, people respond differently to their own anxiety, but a lot of anxious people will follow a script of the shoulds, like just Mm. what should I be doing? Am I doing it wrong? And 
we stop kind of meandering and discovering and playing. And I think play is a really big part of growing and discovering whatever it is you long for. But again, I, we're so kind of freaked out by that. Yeah, it's um, play and this idea of being an adult feels not in harmony at all. And yeah, it should be completely in harmony. We shouldn't ever stop playing. And yet we kind of reach these ages where we feel that uh, we, d- we deny ourselves that. So I love that invitation to explore what play might mean for you in your own life. And I'd really love to ask you about the idea of identity and desire, because you explore with one of your clients the question of who they are without their job. Mm. Yeah, How can we manage identity and desire? And again, do you have any kind of practical tips to start exploring that for yourself? I mean, this actually applies to figuring out your, your kind of hidden desires. Start by asking yourself the last time you faked something, the last time you, you pretended because I'm, I mean, for most of us, it's very recent and, and we're required to perform and pretend to a degree, like just manners and being civilized. <laughs> but it's when we don't even realize that we're pretending that we get confused and then start over explaining something. So mm-hmm. if you're somehow pretending to be someone or you feel the need to prove something, allowing for that fraudulence which sounds really strange because we're so obsessed with authenticity and like vulnerability. Even authenticity is actually kind of fraudulent a lot of the time. Mm. And we use authenticity to kind of overpower people and to mm. muggle in other messages. And I we're tricky creatures. And I think <laughs> if we can allow for that fluidity, then we don't have to define ourselves in one set way. So you can be horrible and also be really kind and you can want despicable things and still have a kind of good enough life. But again, just contradiction is part of us. I mean, again, it's truth, isn't it? I don't think there's anyone listening to this that can't admit their own contradiction. And it reminded me of a quote that I heard Oprah say once where she said, I'm not nice, but I'm kind. And I thought that was nuanced. And again, I appreciate any sort of nuance when it comes to identity or how we describe or how we even think about ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think that idiosyncrasy is really, really valuable and allowing for those kind of little charms, like little things matter as well as big things. So being charmed and enchanted by yourself in those detailed ways, like the first chapter of my book, I described this woman on her deathbed And she was really kind of enchanted by how she would light candles all the time and over pepper things in her cooking. And those details are so vivid and personal. And I think we get really caught up in trying to kind of do the right thing. And then we lose something that is original and private. I mean, we can share those private things, but like being charmed by ourselves is a really wonderful joy. And I think we don't have to miss out on that. Yeah, there was a real sense of kind of love for your weirdness because (laughs) everyone else is so equally strange. But that first story of the woman on her deathbed touched me so deeply. And as a reader, you're just, you so want her to speak her truth to her sons and you're Mm. like willing that that might be a part of the story. Yeah, 
to just somehow fix it and, and make things right. We like to tie things up with a bow in our life stories. Right. And I could read the fact that as a therapist, as much as you may want to tie things up in a bow, it's actually not your job to. And I think that's actually quite important as someone who goes to therapy to know that it is not the therapist's job to tie our lives up in bows. <laughs> it's to help us process. But we expect that as well. I mean, I think a big part of my frustration with therapists has been like, why aren't you doing anything? I've wanted therapists to also help me tie my own life up with a bow. Yeah. I think we expect that and demand that in all sorts of ways in our overattachment to the kind of fixed story. So allowing for messy bits, but being kind of reasonably contained about that. Like it, it doesn't mean we have to just go with some sprawling chaos in our sense of self, but back to your question about identity, we don't have to have it all figured out and kind of know who we are. And I think it, we're a work in progress and it's always up for debate and up for adjustment. I love that. And I love your book and I've really enjoyed this talk and I really deeply appreciate this book. There is something for everyone in there. You can relate to all these different characters that you talk about and that obviously are based on real stories, but you've changed all the names. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.